from Doha Debates and Foreign Policy, welcome to The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams. Today, we have a remarkable story about one person in Burkina Faso who tried to negotiate with Islamist insurgents to make his community safe again. For those who are not familiar, Burkina Faso is a landlocked country in West Africa with more than 20 million people. It's also a former French colony. For some years now, a number of groups with ties to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have waged a violent insurgency in the country, killing thousands of people and displacing about 10% of the population. As the insurgency spreads, the country has become increasingly destabilized. Just last month, military officers staged a coup against the regime. For the second time this year, a military coup has occurred in the African nation of Burkina Faso. Army officers in Burkina Faso have announced the overthrow of military leader Paul Henry Damiba. Captain Ibrahim Traore has been declared the new head of the West African country. Then and now, the justification was a failure to tackle violence perpetrated by militant groups linked to Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. Some experts say the authorities in Burkina Faso now control just 60% of the country's territory. So the situation is pretty bad. Sam Mednick has been reporting on the conflict there, and covers conflicts in a bunch of other places too. We approached Sam to report this episode with us, before the coup, because of a piece that she wrote for the New Humanitarian. It was about community-led negotiations with local militants. We asked Sam to interview one of the negotiators she profiled in that article. This person was from a community that had been displaced by the insurgents. We're calling this negotiator Adama. He didn't want us to use his real name for obvious reasons. Sam recorded the interview remotely. Adama was sitting in a restaurant in the capital of Burkina Faso with Sam's interpreter, Yakuba. So you'll hear some sounds from that backdrop from time to time. I thought I could uh, approach him and then give him some pieces of advice. And that's the English voiceover you'll hear. Adama's story says a lot about the state of the conflict and about ways to approach peacemaking. But before we get to all of that, I wanted to know a little bit more about Sam Mednick. Well, I had been reporting in South Sudan for, for nearly three years, and then I was, I was kicked out of South Sudan. for I was suspended for six months, and at that point I was looking to go somewhere else, and I, I gravitate towards covering conflicts and humanitarian crises in places that are underreported. And at that time, uh, Burkina Faso was, this was the end of 2019, and Burkina Faso had gotten really bad. And so I, I went there to report and then, and then it started, there was, there was sort of a lull in fighting around the situation got really bad, but there's a lull in fighting around these 2020 presidential elections. And I started just asking questions. Why is there less fighting? What's happening? And that's sort of what led me to uncover this ceasefire, the secret deal at the time. And I did reporting on that and then managed to speak to some jihadists who had laid down their guns in the course of that ceasefire. But while I was reporting on that, it became very apparent that these, there was, in addition to, at the time, these high-level talks that were going on with levels of national security with the government and high-level jihadists, there were also local-level talks that had been going on even before this. Community leaders talking to jihadists, jihadists approaching you know, some militias and saying, hey, can we talk? Can we sort something out? And so with 
you know, my editors at the New Humanitarian who were also doing reporting on similar local level negotiations that were happening in Mali, we decided to dive more into this. You know, we thought it was important to look at other ways that people were sort of trying to approach this conflict other than fighting. And it would be really interesting to find out who are these negotiators and who are these guys who are risking their lives and having these conversations with the jihadists. And so that's what led me to kind of dig in. And I just started asking around saying, do you know of any of these people? And through contacts, through contacts, I was led to a few negotiators, including to Adama. Adama is, he's had experience in I won't be as specific as I would be just to protect his his identity. Of course. But he had some experience in, you know, some local local government affairs before. Wumi demo. I am a farmer, but also a breeder because we are doing both. I am uh, 59 years old. I was born in 1960 and uh, I have 14 children, uh, but I didn't finish having children yet. So more children will come. So he's... A respected man, a village elder type figure, kind of is is the picture I'm getting. Is that right? For sure, he's a he's very respected, and as the situation with the jihadists and the attacks was getting worse, and before he started having these more formal negotiations, he had spoken to them before on the phone. You know, there had been an attack, and he had he had called them and said can you stop this or can the village go home? So he he was known as someone who was able to talk to them, to get things done, and was re- I think was highly regarded in that in that respect. Are we talking a specific village, right? It was a village or town that, that he's from, or is it is that the right word to use? So we could call it like a commune, which is sort of like a grouping of many villages. And this was in this was in the, the Sahel region. Was there a specific spate of a kind of attack or specific attacks that were happening on this one area, this one commune area that the locals were trying to stop? Was there something that brought this to a head? Like, okay, we need to do something about this. Yes. And I, I, that's something that I asked him as well, kind of wondering, when did it, you know, what was the turning point for you that you said, okay, we need to have these discussions. And he said that, you know, towards the end of 2019, the situation was just getting a lot worse. At that time, uh, there were killings everywhere and then there were also kidnappings. There was a lot of suffering going on in the community because uh, uh, all the people had displaced to, to the cities. Uh, but those people who displaced, they are mainly farmers and they are mainly like animal breeders. So since they left their villages where they could, uh, you know, farm, where they could breed their animals and then went to cities, they were suffering a lot. And the, the humanitarian support that they were receiving were not enough. So that's why I was really moved and then touched. I say, why not reach him out and then try to see if he may agree to let them go back to, a, to their villages. Jihadists were basically chasing everyone out of, the, of their villages. People had left, meaning they couldn't farm, they couldn't, they couldn't cultivate, they were, they were displaced. Uh, the people who were living in those areas had to abide by the jihadist version of Sharia law. They had to you know, cut their pants. Women had to be veiled. And he said that it was just getting really bad. Apart from that, there were also schools that were being closed because they were like, we don't like modern school. People need to teach other things, like Arabic. 
So that's uh, that. Uh, I mean, I have a reason why I decided to reach him out. And it was at that point where him, the community members, said, "Okay, let's let's reach out to them. Let's at least identify them, talk to them, and open some type of dialogue." Got it. And when you say cut their pants, I'm guessing you're referring to like the Salafi jihadist style of like the short pants that are cut off like uh, pedal pushers. Is that is that what you mean when you said cut their pants? Right. Yes. Right. So they're making them stick to these kind of these really specific rules about their version of Islamic dress code, et cetera, et cetera, for men and women. Okay. You mentioned that he had like talked to some of these jihadists beforehand. So does he just like have them in his in his phone? Does he just like, do you just like call up the guy or like, how does he get in touch with them? These guys, they know each other. They all, they, they grew up together. So Adama knew, he, everyone knew who the main, the head guy was. They just, he was well known. They knew his name and he knew him. He is older than him. Uh, his name is Amadou Badini. And he, he grew up with him. He was friends with his parents, with his family. He watched this guy grow up. And I used to go uh, to my uncle's home, my uncle's village, which is uh, his village, I mean, uh, Badini's village. And uh, I used to meet him, I used to talk with him, and uh, we were basically uh, talking about, you know, breeding animals and also uh, farming. I thought I could uh, impact him, I could have him change his mind, because uh, when he was still young and when he was not uh, radicalized yet, I used to advise him and there was a trust between us. He trusted me and I also I trusted him. So that's why I thought I could uh, approach him and then give him some pieces of advice. He said he watched him become radicalized, that he, Badini had gone to study in Mali, he came back and he sort of saw this evolution of him becoming more like less tolerant of of people who weren't abiding by his version of Islam. So what shocked me in Badini's life when he came back from Mali was that he started like uh, being isolated and uh, instead of like uh, going uh, and visiting his relatives, visiting uh, his parents and then attending like uh, the baptism ceremony or uh, some other feast in the villages, he started saying, no, this is uh, for pagans. And then he started even qualifying all his family members and the other villagers as like pagans. And uh, he was saying that they have to change their religion. They had to change the way they are doing, they are, the way they are practicing, you know, religion. I was, uh, uh, when I see him changing, uh, I was like uh, very sad, but also angry at the same time. Because uh, I am, pa- I'm, I'm like, uh, I like democracy. I like uh, modern school. I like everything that is uh, uh, that is helping with uh, the development. And seeing him changing and being against all these things uh, made me so sad. Of course, I did not have any choice. Though I was angry and sad, I had to talk to him since I knew that our salvation is somehow in their hands. So I did not have any choice anyway. So Amadou Badini had become the leader of an Al-Qaeda-aligned group based on the border with Mali. Adama didn't have his phone number, but he knew, and they knew where the base was, essentially. They knew where the, you know, they congregated and where they slept. So in 2020, I decided to go and meet uh, Badini because uh, there was uh, like a pressure 
by the community leaders and then uh, the, 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 the population that were like, uh, well, uh, we need uh, to negotiate, we need to do something so that peace may come back. So that's why uh, the community leaders had a gathering. And during the gathering, they said, okay, who shall we send to go and meet him? And then I proposed myself. I said, I, I can go. That's how uh, it was a Sunday. I decided to go. I took my motorcycle. And so what he ended up doing was just getting on his bike and going by himself into the bush to where he knew this base was and kind of took a chance and said, I'm just going to go and speed things up and went to the base and said, I want to speak to Badini. So when we say the bush, right, like we're talking like this is pretty, pretty jungly forest that they're where their base is, right? He's in the Sahel, so it's more deserty than jungly bush. It's it's arid desert where you probably have some sparse trees here and there. Okay. But I mean, it's it's very remote and and it's it's very hot and you don't there's not a lot there. And he yes, he got on his, his motorbike and basically went up to their went to their base and he said he saw the commanders at the base and said I'd like to speak to Badini and they said okay sleep here for the night we'll contact him on they use walkie talkies in some cases and so they contacted Badini and then he met him the next morning what happened what goes next so they have an initial meeting the two of them so when I finished uh, speaking to Badini he took the floor and then said well I, of course, know that if you did not talk, if you did not have the agreement of the army and the authorities, uh, you wouldn't have come to meet me. You would have been maybe afraid. But anyway, you know, uh, we can, we don't have any problem letting you go back to your, to your villages. But there are some rules actually to respect. And among those rules, you have to know that f- when you come back, the judgment, like the justice, will be implemented by us in the villages. And second, uh, you should cut as men, you should cut uh, your pants and then leave your beers. Women should uh, veil. So these are a few rules that you should respect uh, when you come back. So, yeah. The first meeting was short, but sort of like we'll, we'll reconvene. Both sides will bring more people. And then a few weeks later, that's what happened. That big meeting after the break. Welcome back to The Negotiators, a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm Jen Williams. Before the break, you heard about Adama's first meeting with Amadou Badini, a guy he grew up with and who is now affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Adama is trying to negotiate the return of his neighbors to this group of villages. And now there's going to be a bigger meeting between Badini's people and Adama's people. There was a location they agreed to meet at. It was about 40 kilometers outside of Jibo. Jibo is the main town in in Sum province in the Sahel. Uh, and, and both sides had to agree to that. So uh, this, for the second meeting, we were 23 people who left uh, Jibo. It was in May. And then we went uh, to that place that they designated ahead and then said, that is where you should come and then meet us. So we were even the, the people who came first. When we came, we waited for them. Later on, we heard uh, the noise of the motorcycles. So they came, there were 30 of them. 
And uh, when they came, they had some mattress with them. They had some tea. They had some their luggage and everything. They even, uh, you know, cooked some tea for us. So yeah, I'm just trying to picture this, right? Because you have presumably a heavily armed contingent in the jihadists. I, I'm guessing they brought their guns. I've seen videos of some of these meetings. They are fully armed. And the other side doesn't doesn't have any. I mean, not Adama, but another another negotiator described it as essentially like a movie, in, in describing some of these fighters who look really young, and some of them are weak and they, and dirty, and you know they say that some of them look like they can't even hold these guns that they're too heavy for them, but they are heavily armed and you know faces covered in many cases. Okay, and then you have the other side of like the local villagers. It's a group of village elders, and from what I understand, from what you know, they told me they they spend a lot of time deciding who would go, and a lot of the communities try and send a mix of people. So you have, you know, like religious leaders, community leaders. You also have, in some cases, these volunteer fighters. These are these are vol- these are f- civilians turned fighters who have been helping the army, who the jihadists really have been targeting and, and don't like. And, but some of these groups include these volunteer fighters in these groups to make it very inclusive and to, you know, to say, look, these are all the people that we are trying to negotiate with you and trying to have put some calm to the situation. Yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, picture like Adama with his group of guys are all sitting around. I imagine it's really tense. They're drinking tea. Like what did what did Adama tell you? Like, did he talk to you about how he felt during these negotiations. He told me that the first time driving up when he was on his motorbike going to the base initially, he was nervous. When I was on my motorcycle uh, riding to go and meet him, many things were going on in my mind. Uh, The first thing was that uh, I'm going to meet some people that I'm afraid of. And the second thing was like, uh, I'm also afraid of the army. Of course, there was a kind of ceasefire between the army and uh, the terrorist group. But uh, I was still afraid. But there was something that was like motivating me. I was mandated by people. And that was very important to me. That's why I decided to go and meet him. Okay, so let's get back to this big second meeting. They sat for, this was a long meeting. They sat, I think, for near four, four hours approximately. Okay, so when uh, they arrived, uh, they said, well, uh, there we go. What, what are you coming for? And then I took the floor and then said, well, uh, we have come because uh, we want you to help us. Uh, we have our commune, which is empty, 24 villages. No one is there. And then we are uh, asking you to help us so that these villages may come back. And then they replied, they said, well, uh, we will see if it is something doable or not. Well, as you know, we have an agreement with the army. And based on this agreement, the army is not supposed to attack us. And we also, we are supposed not to attack the army. But as for these villages returning in the commune, Uh, There is no problem. All the villages can return to the commune and all the people from this commune can go back, uh, you know, to to their different villages. But we will be against anyone who will be against us. So that's what they said. So they also said for the time being, 
we don't have the permission from our commanders to let the villages or the people from the villages to go in the central of the commune and uh, settle there. But the people can settle around the commune, but not in the, the, in the middle of the commune. They wouldn't allow them to go back to the main village, which is something that other negotiators have said as well. Meaning the jihadists wouldn't let the people who had fled come back? Yeah, so the jihadists, the, the jihadists, the main jihadists said that the, that the villagers, the ones who had been displaced, couldn't return to the main village of the commune, like the center one. But he said that they could return to sort of the smaller villages, the surrounding villages. So we replied to them and then we said, well, uh, we completely agree abiding by your rules. There is no problem in that. But the second, I mean, the, the second rule that you mentioned, which is uh, we should live, uh, we should settle around the commune, we should not settle in the middle of the commune, we, are, we don't agree with that uh, because it won't help us. We have our hospitals that are closed there, we have schools that are closed there, and uh, if we were able to get into the middle of the city, then uh, our doctors will, would come back, the teacher would come back, and then we will continue also opening our mosques that are closed for, uh, for many months. So uh, for that, we don't agree. So Badini said the reason why they don't want us to go and live in the middle of the commune is that uh, they don't want to have more problems with the army because they know that if the population go back to the, to the middle of the city, uh, the army will come back, the authorities, local authorities will come back while uh, they are having problems with the army and they don't want to keep on having problems with the army. To prevent this to happen, uh, they are requesting us not to live in the middle of the city. So the conclusion of that meeting was uh, go back and uh, leave, uh, settle around uh, the commune and then abide by those rules that we listed. And we said, well, we will go back and then we will report uh, to the community because we are all messengers. And then when we went back, we had a, a very large gathering where there were even some authorities, and then we share with them. There were some people who, who were saying, well, it is not uh, difficult as such uh, to implement what they're asking. And there were also some people who were like, it is very hard, we cannot. So that's how uh, we ended the meeting. And uh, later on, I talked to him, uh, Badini, requesting him if, uh, I mean, asking him if uh, they had like an agreement from their commanders to let us go and live in the middle of the city. And he said, no, so far we didn't get. So that's how we ended the meeting. It sounds, from him and also, you know, other negotiators, the, the, it, they, what I came away with from speaking to them was that they really came away with these mixed emotions. So some other thoughts that were going on in my mind was that, well, uh, we have come to meet them expecting to get some result, but uh, we have just got, got like a half result, not the whole result, and uh, we don't know what will come next, and uh, we are just like uh, half satisfied. And uh, I am like uh, today, if the army would just uh, give or the authority would give like a, uh, a permission for us to start again, you know, negotiating with them, that would be fine. In Adama's case, they didn't get what they wanted fully at all. They're, they're sort of negotiating, you know, really with like their hands tied behind their back in a way. They don't have a lot to offer. They don't 
have government support at this point saying, this is what you can give them. In many cases, they're not even telling the government that they're talking to them because they're concerned the government is going to think that they're part of the jihadists. And and so they're not, they're, they're coming away with sort of half of what they, they really want. Like these guys weren't able to go back to the main village, which is what they really wanted because that's where the hospitals and the services are. And so he, he came, he kind of walked away feeling like, okay, I feel like they're open to discussing. And I feel like this is the start of more conversations, but we didn't get everything that we wanted out of this conversation. I guess that makes sense, right? Because I'm trying to think, you know, if I'm, if I'm the jihadist, why would I give in to any of these demands? Like, what are they offering me? The villagers weren't offering, they weren't offering anything, but they had to, but the jihadists were basically saying, we're willing to do this, but you do need to abide by our version of Sharia law. uh, And you, you know, you can't live in the main town. It is potentially in their interest to, I don't know, win over, but to be on decent relations with the community. Also, because they say that's not who they're targeting, that they're targeting government, the military, uh, security forces. So that's that's potentially what, yeah, what's in it for the jihadists. So after they have this big meeting, right, they don't get everything. The villagers, they don't get everything they want, but they get some things. What about schooling? You mentioned something about like, why can't we teach French in our schools? Did they, were there other things they came to some sort of an arrangement on? No, the schooling thing was not negotiable, according to Adama. That was off the table. I, they could teach in Arabic, but they couldn't teach French in schools or, you know, what they said was Western education. They couldn't, they couldn't teach that. And they said that the the fighting, I mean, subsided a, a little bit. So since that second meeting, uh, the security situation has improved positively a lot. Because uh, before that meeting, everyone was like afraid. Even people living from Jibo were afraid like to be kidnapped at night time and then be taken to, to be killed. But since we got that meeting with them, we are just sleeping. Every night we are sleeping a lot. We are no longer afraid because we know that uh, they are not uh, bad. They will not kill us. The biggest thing I think, you know, from speaking to Adama is that it opened the lines of communication. He had a direct line with them and could call them. And they had more conversations after this. At one point, he needed to get medicine to some people taking care of his cattle. And so he was able to call and to go to that area and give them some medicine. So it, it just kind of made things more fluid between the groups. And I think that's just such a fascinating model, right? When we think about negotiating and the ways to end conflict, like this isn't ending anything. These jihadist groups haven't decided to lay down arms and go be best friends with these villagers. You know, the army, the government is still going to do their thing. But like, it's enabling people to at least live their lives in some capacity in a way that's you know, it's not ideal, but it's better than it was before, right? Did you get the sense that like, from the community that on balance they thought that like, yeah, we didn't solve the war, you know, but things are better? They were really happy to have this reprieve, this this space, this respite from the constant attacks. 
And a lot, some of these communities that did have these periods of peace have now started fighting again. And, and that calm has dissipated. And that is a concern from a lot of these negotiators who say that our efforts are good and we do believe that this needs to be locally led. However, there needs to be a national government strategy at the top level. And that is not happening, at least outwardly, at least overtly, at least it's not being communicated if it is. And that's where a lot of them see like the weakest link right now. That was Sam Mednick, a freelance journalist who covered community-led negotiations with local militants in Burkina Faso for The New Humanitarian. The Negotiators is a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. Our production team includes Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tatey, Jafit Weeks, Jigar Mehta, Amjad Atala, and Dan Efron. Laura Rosprautellum is the show's senior producer. Thanks to Nelifar Hidayat, Govinda Clayton, and James Wally for helping create the show. And special thanks this week to Yakuba Lido, who was the interpreter for Adama's interview, and to Fanny Nuaro Cabre, who recorded the interview. Foreign Policy is a magazine of news and ideas from around the world. And we encourage you to subscribe at foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation, where the most urgent issues of our time are discussed and debated. Tune in at dohadebates.com. On the next episode, we hear from the chief U.S. negotiator of the New START Treaty, the last remaining nuclear arms control agreement between Russia and the United States. There was some criticism in Moscow, apparently, because the Americans selected a woman to be the chief negotiator, and the Russians are famous misogynists. So there were critiques that came out, even into the press, saying, you know, oh, a woman negotiator, and Antonov has to stand up to a woman negotiator, etc., etc. That episode, coming up on The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams. 